Hello and welcome to the VentureForth Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Mahavutivani. We'll be chatting with some of the most interesting founders, startups, and VCs about the experiences that led them to where they are today, what they're currently working on, as well as the journey ahead of them. On today's show, we venture forth with Michael Saka, the newly minted president of Crew.co, a platform for hiring a trusted creative professional. The Montreal-based company was formerly known as Oomph and has raised about $14 million to date. Before assuming the top job, Michael headed partnerships for Crew, and before that, he was in San Diego and Las Vegas as a founder. As a former San Diegan myself, I'm excited to learn about his experience of building a business in America's finest city, as well as how he plans to expand Crew to become the largest platform for creative freelancers in the world. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's really a pleasure. Awesome. Well, before we get started, I want to get this out of the way real quick. Any relation to Chris Saka? <laughs> you know, he wrote me on Instagram once. And he said, hey, shoot me an email. I want to, you know, let's figure out how we're related. Um, but I don't think he knew I was in tech. I think he, I was just a Saka on Instagram and he was he was doing some family hunting. Um, so I wrote him an email, but I, I think I mistakenly mentioned that I was running a tech company down in San Diego and I never heard from him. Followed up with him like three or four times. But I think the the fear of having to, you know, kind of engage in that way um, might have scared him off. <laughs> so so no confirm. There's still possibility. There's a possibility. I, I haven't been able to figure it out on like ancestry, but I grew up in Albany, New York. He grew up in Buffalo, um, which is about six hours apart. Um, so most likely at some point there there is a connection with the same last name growing up literally in the same state. Amazing. Cool. Well, can you tell us a little about your background? Yeah. So I, I started off at I was like 26 when I got into tech for the first time. I moved out to L.A. I was working in a restaurant and my roommate was uh, he taught himself PHP and he would get up at like noon, he would get home from work at four and he had built some essential software inside of the company that was working at where they just couldn't fire him. They were just happy to have him there. And so he lived, he made like three times as much as me and he lived a pretty leisurely uh, lifestyle. And so I, I eventually after kind of, you know, waiting tables and, and struggling in, in LA, um, I quit and started teaching myself how to code. And that was my first introduction into the tech industry. Um, from there, I eventually grew a small agency, which we ran out of uh, San Diego. We built a couple uh, projects like uh, Brandisty and Bilingual Child. Bilingual Child is a language learning app for kids. Brandisty was a, a cloud platform for managing brand assets. Um, and uh, that was that was my first tech company and my first experience founding um, before I moved to Vegas and eventually joined Crew. So at the beginning, you came out to the West Coast to wait tables. Uh, well, no, but um, like most people that move out to LA, uh, it was a bit harder for me to find work. I had gotten a music business degree, oh, wow. which is probably the most useless degree um, in the early 2000s. So as soon I, I went to college in 2000, Napster launched in 2000, and that pretty much uh, bankrupt the music industry by uh, by 2004 when I graduated. And so I naively went out to L.A. with my music business degree and tried to apply for jobs. Of course, no one who's actually working in the music industry has this BS 
music industry degree. So I didn't get anywhere. Um, actually after three years, I finally got an offer for a $10 an hour internship at CAA. Um, but at that point I was already uh, teaching myself how to code. It took me that long sending out resumes and kind of pounding the pavement to, to really get anywhere. So I was, I was really unsuccessful in, in finding a position in what I wanted to do. So I ended up waiting tables to, to pay rent. So this was before the, the surge of, of boot camps for coding. Uh, oh, how yeah. did you learn to teach yourself how to code? So I had a friend, um, and, and so I relied heavily on him. There was a little bit of like, um, what is that? Tuts, uh, PSD tuts and, and, uh, web tuts. There was that site. Um, so I used a lot of that and then it was a lot of just trial and error, a lot of really long days, um, breaking stuff and trying to rebuild it over and over again. And I would just say yes to everything. And so any project that came along, yes, I know how to do that. And then I would spend the next 48 hours trying to learn, um, learn how. And so, uh, it's probably a lot easier this day, uh, with code boot camps, et cetera, but I made it work and I kind of grew from a designer into a front end developer and then eventually into more business development and sales. I grew up and live in the Bay area now, but I went to college and lived in San Diego for about eight years. And I started my first company and fell in love with startups and technology there, but ultimately left to build my company in the Bay Area. With over 300 days of sun annually, San Diego is obviously an amazing place to live, especially compared to the wet weather we're experiencing in San Francisco right now. But it takes a lot more than amazing weather to build a great startup company. So what's missing in, uh, in San Diego? Can you tell us about your experience? Yeah, so there's definitely a couple. The, the infrastructure is missing. And when I was there, they were trying to build the infrastructure, but it's probably it's one of the most important parts of any young ecosystem. So the funding was pretty light. So most companies had to and we I saw the same thing in Vegas when when you would go to raise a larger round, you would raise from San Francisco. And in when you're in San Fran, once you raise from San Francisco, it, unless you have leverage, a lot of your VCs at that point will want you to move up to San Diego or up to San Francisco. So you have a bit of a drain when companies are successful. Also, when companies are acquired, you're going up to San Francisco. And so you have this constant drain of talent. Um, they have a decent pool of talent on the young end, but a lot of the kids don't want who are graduating college don't want to stay in San Diego. They want to go up to the cool place. And it's not that far away, but they want to be in Silicon Valley. They want to work for the big name companies. So and so, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go on. Well, I was going, going to ask you about how to prevent that brain drain, but uh, uh, I apologize for interrupting. No, no, it's fine. Um, so I don't quite know how you – I mean in Vegas, we saw the exact same thing. So the problem was there wasn't the Series A capital available at a – at a you know large enough volume for enough companies to keep them there so you would have some small successes but success without large capital and network which is two of the advantages of san francisco uh, it takes a longer time to get to that second generation so to have a large exit and then have those founders or those early employees come back and then reinvest in the community that's how you 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 start to keep the capital in san diego um from from what I understand, or at least when I was there, there wasn't that large exit and then recapitalization or reinvestment by those founders in San Diego. So the attractive thing was still to go up to San Francisco. And it was almost like a graduation event, like you made it once you either got a job or your company moved 
up to San Francisco, there was high fives, which, you know, but you're actually draining the ecosystem of its talent. And I think the other thing is the the community didn't focus enough on the Qualcomm talent um, because it, oftentimes the, the talent at Qualcomm wasn't the the hot tech Node.js uh, talent, but it, it was more of the raw infrastructure talent. Um, so they tried to build the community downtown where it's hard to it's it's hard to access, so you don't have parking. You know, you, so you you have to kind of draw from the talent that's downtown, and it also kind of alienates the talent that's up north in the Qualcomm. So they didn't really take advantage of the large company where people were leaving when they have disposable income if they've worked for Qualcomm for five or ten years. Um, that that could start that second company. Uh, it. it Maybe they're doing a better job now, but when I was there, it wasn't a focus. The focus was on kind of the the t- the hot web tech downtown, and then obviously the biotech. But those were two very different scenes. Definitely, uh, Brad Feld kind of outlines his key principles for building the startup ecosystem, and, and that includes you know leaders and feeders, which are really led by uh, the entrepreneurs who were either successful or or are moving in that direction as well as looking at a generational view of things. So, you know, like looking long-term to that vision, but not like five or six years, but really like a 20-year outlook. Also yeah. to be inclusive and also to have events. I, I feel like for the most part, San Diego has all of those components. One thing that I've noticed that San Francisco really excels at also is having density as well. And to support what you're saying with, you know, having things downtown and, and downtown, you know, parking is tough and even just public transportation and getting there is really tough. It seems like having that density where you can just get to these things easily and, and have the community kind of nurture within itself, you know, would really benefit that community. And I think what we forget in the density is that San Francisco just moved into the downtown, like in the last five years. Silicon Valley is outside of the downtown San Francisco. Right. It's expensive to be downtown. You have to have money, you know, or you have to have some some good infrastructure in order to get companies down there. And you have to have people living in the downtown. But traditionally, where most of the innovation, the early development in San Francisco was in these almost suburban areas where Yahoo was founded, where Google was founded, that's there. there's there's density in that there's people and you you can easily meet them but there was it people were able to live and they were able to afford uh work uh at a lower rate to build something amazing whereas uh jumping into a downtown scene is tough because the living expenses are high the cost of rent is high and the accessibility is low and so you really limit the the talent that you can get down there every day you mentioned that San Diego is is kind of missing the Series A funding. Are, are you implying that seed stage funding is something that is accessible? Well, there's there's some angels. It's still really light. Um, there are some kind of uh, seed stage funds popping up, but overall, I I don't know. I don't know anyone that's cutting those big Series A checks um, or is able to lead a Series A round at like a a. Eight million, or even you know, twenty or thirty million evaluation. Right. Yeah, I mean, I work with Social Leverage, which is a San Diego-based fund, and so I know we do deals down there. But uh, certainly, the the bulk of them are are happening in the Bay Area or or New York. So yeah, that's that's definitely something I think that can be improved upon, or or something that can take the lead on that. Yeah. You were a successful founder in San Diego with Tiny Factory, and you had tons of projects been out with that, including one acquisition with Brandisty. Why did you leave? 
Oh, yeah. Um, so we were an agency first, and I had kind of burnt out on the agency model, and I really wanted to be able to focus on one project every day. Uh, none of our projects were able to support even the team at that level uh, where we were at. And and so for me personally, I, I was kind of done with the agency always finding new clients. Um, and I wanted to figure out an opportunity where I could build one thing and wake up every day and improve that one thing rather than having to improve 10 projects and, and you know, having my focus kind of scattered. So what was your path to crew? Yeah. So I left uh, tiny factory about two years ago, little, little over two years ago. Um, and then I, I founded a company in between with a friend who had just left Google. Um, and we, so we worked for about six months. We weren't quite able to get where we wanted to go. And Mikel had reached out and said, Hey, I have this partnership position. I, I had stayed in touch with Mikel since they were oomph, uh, be, just because I admired the way that he was able to build crew. Um, and you know, he's a, he's a phenomenal writer and, uh, he had built this company and they had just raised, uh, they hadn't announced it yet, but they had just raised their $8 million round. Um, and so it just seemed like a great opportunity to be able to join a team that had some infrastructure, but I was number 14. So I could still have a huge impact on what we were doing. Um, but you know, it, it kind of, we, we had some traction and we had customers and we had a product that we knew worked in the market. So you're now the president of crew and by the way, congrats on the huge promotion. Thank you. Uh, Thank I think you. this is uh, new as of last week. Yeah. Um, uh, what prompted this management change and what can crew do better at? How are you going to leverage your strengths to tackle those challenges? So for people that don't know, crew is built crew, crew.co and then unsplash and unsplash is, uh, it was a side project that Mikel had started very early on in crew. And so we always had a dedicated team working on Unsplash. Unsplash is free, royalty free photos. And so you can go on, there's thousands of photos and people use them for commercials, um, banners, really whatever. But the original idea was for your splash page. Uh, so that is growing 30% month over month. And we just saw a huge opportunity in Unsplash. And Mikel, instead of splitting his focus between Crew and Unsplash, he went over and he's now running Unsplash full time with all of his focus so we can make sure that that continues to grow. And then I'm stepping up into the president role at Crew so that we can have someone focused full time on growing Crew. And I think this last year has been a huge learning for us. So I started off doing partnerships. I moved um, kind of into direct sales almost in the last year. And we learned a ton about who our customer is, why they're using us. And we're, we're going to be applying a lot of those lessons directly to the product, which we haven't done previously. Um, so you'll see a lot of the a lot of the lessons that we learned literally just from talking to our customers by doing face-to-face -face sales integrated directly into our product development. And we'll, we'll try to, to automate some of those things that work on the sales side now inside of the product. Unsplash is super popular and I've used it many times myself for you know blog, mm -hmm. flash uh, images, pitch deck photos, hero images, backgrounds, that sort of thing. But Unsplash isn't the only side project that Crew has worked on, is it? No, no, we've done a lot. Some work, some don't, but yeah. Tell me about some of those and why yes. why you build them. 
So I think the most obvious and direct related to crew is uh, how much to make an app or how much to make a website, how much to make a logo, it's how much to make.com. And, and that basically just, we were trying to solve the problem of people who aren't sure how much things cost on average in our industry. And it's a, it's a huge problem in our industry in general that, um, you know, you go to three or four different agencies, you get three or four drastically different prices. So we wanted to at least help get people into the ballpark so that when they were setting out to build the next Uber, uh, they had a budget higher than $500 because we see that a lot. People just the, the kind of connecting the value to the technology is sometimes disconnected. So we wanted to, to help do that. We've done full how to build a business series. Uh, we've built a couple others like how to end awkward handshakes. Um, <laughs> and um, and we did a full study on Slack versus hip chat. And so those those uh, all did well in their own their own light. Um, and they're all for different reasons. You know, the Slack versus hip chat is a great, and now it just kind of lives in SEO when, when people are searching, um, and that's done really well. So yeah, we've always kind of kept side projects as a, I guess, part of our culture and, and something that we always want to be doing because we saw the success of, of Unsplash, which really saved crew in terms of being able to bring enough attention to it. So side projects can often be seen as distractions or even signs that a, a business is struggling and maybe looking to pivot. Were these mostly primarily for like lead generation? You mentioned that Unsplash saved crew. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Unsplash was was unexpected, right? So that was it's definitely intended for lead generation to crew. It was unexpected how fast it grew and how fast it's continued to grow with almost no. We have like a product team on it up until a couple of months ago. Um, and it's been growing 30% month over month. Uh, now that we can put some marketing muscle behind it, we'll see what happens. And, and so, but that's been impressive in and of itself, but it was built originally for lead gen for crew. And most of the side projects are, and so these aren't side projects in the sense of a whole nother business avenue to explore. They're more side projects to market the core product. So can we give people little tools and things so that they discover crew in different ways and have uh, a positive experience? Can we provide value to them before they come and spend money with us? So now that you're the boss, what is your vision for crew? So we're, we'll be continuing in the same, like we really want to influence how people work. We see this new economy of freelancers and we want to make that better. Um, so I started off as a freelancer. Uh, and I know a lot of the pain and struggle of freelancing. Um, I also ran an agency where we hired people. And so I understand what it's like on the, on the other side too. people disappearing, you know, the work not being up to quality. So our goal is to improve the way that people work, give them an opportunity so that they can find quality work consistently. Uh, and then also be able to build trust faster between project owner and, and talent right? And creative talent so that uh, everyone has a better experience. Most of the POs that are the project owners that reach us, we find have had a negative experience out there. They've been burned by a local freelancer. Or they used a service like, you know, Elance where the quality of work was low or the communication was very difficult. Those are the problems that we want to solve. The freelancer market seems very competitive, especially with two of the largest players consolidating a few years ago. How will crew continue to stand out and attract projects and talent away from those competitors? So I think it's it is 
a competitive market, but our key differentiator has always been quality. And so we have focused on providing quality projects at a good rate to a community of vetted professionals that can, you know, execute at the quality that crew is set. And so I think it's different when you have an open marketplace and no one is monitoring what's going in or out, um, where we're monitoring all the project that comes in, the budgets that are set, as well as the work that's produced. And for companies, it's a huge advantage because you can hire people on a freelance basis for a fraction for a fraction of the risk because we we have all the projects that they've done, we know their communication style, and we're vetting for them. If you go to a, an open marketplace, it's a lot more difficult to know what you're going to get on the other side. Right. And now with all these people and, and projects to manage, how do you manage your own time and stay productive? Um, so I take kind of a, I don't have a traditional, I guess, productivity schedule hack. Uh, I don't keep a to-do list. I generally, I generally have goals for the week that I'd like to accomplish, but leave, I have to leave time for company things that come up, right? People have problems. There's uh, issues with customers and I need to leave time for that. And then, so I keep a fairly open schedule and, um, I keep a fairly open task list at this point so that I can make sure that I can attend to what's important, um, and then leave time for, to get some of the bigger initiatives that I'd like to, to check off. So you, you started off in New York, made your way to the West Coast, spent some time in Vegas, and, and now Canada. What are some of the challenges or advantages of being a Canadian company? <laughs> so taxes suck. Um, that's just the thing. Um, but the culture is a lot different here. Now, I've only been here a month, um, but there is more of a focus on people. So for a business, that can be challenging because for you know maternity leave, it's uh, six to six months to a year off. For, for both the mother and father. As an American coming into that situation, you wonder how am I gonna make it work, right? Or, or what does that look like? But what you get is people who feel like they're being taken care of by their government and, and by their companies. And I think overall, it creates a nicer working environment where it's not so sleep under the desk, work constantly. Um, there's a, a big mix, at least in Montreal, of a very European culture, long meetings over, over lunch. Um, I actually had a partner you know, say, you know, now that you're in Montreal, we can do business like proper Quebecians, uh, where we have like three hour meetings over, over a, a meal. And, and that's standard here in, in the States, I would never want to take more than 30 minutes to meet with a partner. Um, but it's a lot more relationship driven, uh, at least it seems to be. So I, I think there's advantages, disadvantages, and I'm, I'm still kind of figuring out the landscape. So you're a, also a podcaster yourself. Uh, you've been doing it for about three years and have hosted, I think, hundreds of awesome entrepreneurs. Who's been your favorite guest and why? Oh, there's so many favorites. So most recently, we haven't released the episode yet, uh, but did you ever watch Startup Junkies? Uh, I believe so. That was on, I can't remember the network, but that was a long time ago. It was like 10 years ago, right? Yeah, so yeah. that was uh, Earth Class Mail. Yes, that's right. I remember yep. that. And so their founder, Ron Wiener, um, he is still, he's an entrepreneur in Seattle and he's done three or four ventures since Earth Class Mail. I've had this weird obsession with 
Earth Class Mail as a company because of that show and following them. So I started doing a a full series on kind of what happened from startup junkies to today because they've gone through a bankruptcy. They, they've been through a reorder. So I interviewed Ron Wiener um, as part of that and and part of, of what he's doing now. So we're releasing that one coming up. And that was just for me personally. Um, that was really cool because when I was starting out, getting into technology and startups, he was one of the first people on TV that, that you would see and was making it happen. Um, and he's a fairly unconventional founder in terms of kind of the way that he approaches things. Um, he's not the general like 25-year-old Stanford graduate in San Francisco that we see today and that we read about. Um, so I just found him very relatable. So I really like talking to him. Um, we interviewed Jason Freed, who's always amazing, uh, recently. Uh, so he, he was great. And then, uh, recently we did a, a series on growth and we got to interview Andrew Chen, uh, who's at Uber and he is just, uh, a wealth of knowledge. And so really learned a lot about metrics and, and what they're tracking at Uber from him. I was uh, definitely a fan of um, Startup Junkies now that I remember that it was Earth Class Mail. And I know I know a lot of people abroad that use their service, actually. Yeah, uh, yeah. We still have one in uh, on Market Street downtown in San Francisco. And then, uh, obviously, Jason Fried of 37 Signals. Yeah. Um, that's great. So I, I'm an aspiring podcaster myself. What tips do you have for me? Um, so what do you struggle with? What, what's the hardest part for you about podcasting? I think at the beginning, I think it's, you know, it's changing, but at the beginning was trying to figure out how to get great audio quality, mm. uh, ask the right questions, great guests, obviously. I think now, you know, I think it's trying to determine how do I continue to keep that pipeline filled and, you know, what I, what I want to do with it, I think. You know, do I want to turn this into a business like Harry Stebbings has? And he's got a great podcast as well. And also I should plug Rocket Ship FM, which is, which is your show. Yeah. I think it's just kind of figuring it out. I think this is, yeah. you know, still early days for me, uh, and figuring out what I want to do with it. Yeah. No, it's, and it's, I mean, I think the beauty of it is that it can be, it can be a side project as it's been like for me for three years. Um, or you can actually, there's enough money coming into the ecosystem now where you can turn into a full time, you know, with a little hustle. Um, it's absolutely possible. I, I guess, um, I've always, I, I've been trying to change the show more over the years because podcasting has changed. When we started, there weren't a lot of entrepreneurial interviews. So there was Mixergy, right? And so what, what I've tried to do, like this year, we tried to do actual episodes. And so where we took some of the interviews that we were doing, where the great content was at, you know, the 14th minute, but we knew not everyone was actually listening or if they were listening, they might not be paying attention because people put on a podcast and they go to work or they, they go on a walk, they go on the train. And so we wanted to start pulling out those nuggets that we knew were in there, but people maybe weren't finding every time uh, into more focused shows. So for this year, we're, we, we refocused the show to, to have these episodes. And then next year, we're going to be diving deeper into storytelling. And so instead of focusing on teaching how to, we're going to focus on more of the stories behind the people that are doing this great work. And we're going to be looking outside of tech. So for me, it's always been a creative endeavor. And it, I've used it since they don't let me touch any code or design anything anymore. <laughs> um, I've used it to scratch that creative itch for myself because I need something. I need to, I need to create something um, or else I feel unfulfilled. And so this scratches that itch for me where I can still be creative, but it's, 
it's not that hard to put out every week. Right. I, I've had a lot of fun doing it myself. So uh, I look forward to your your new format, especially I'm a, I'm a loyal listener to the Startup Podcast as well. Oh. Uh, yeah, they do a phenomenal. I mean, they kind of killed it for everybody because it was just so well done. Right. Um, but yeah, but it's good. I mean, it's podcasting, man. It's uh, It could be whatever you want it to be. Absolutely. And so I'd like to take the time to move into our quick fire round, followed by yeah. an opportunity for you to plug anything that you wish. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so uh, to get, kick things off, can you tell us about your favorite book? Uh, ever? Uh, right sure. Now? Uh, bo- both work, actually. Okay. So probably my favorite book ever is a design book called The Social History of the Machine Gun. And it basically goes through the design of the machine gun throughout history and the impacts it's had on society. And for me, it was it was a book that changed the way I thought about design and what we bring into the world, um, because you really see the impact, both positive and negative, that it has on human life. And so that was probably one of the most eye-opening books and a book that I reread every couple of years, uh, really from both a social but more of a design perspective. Can you tell me about your dream job as a kid? As a kid? I just wanted to be an artist as a kid, but I was terrible. Like I couldn't really draw, but that's I, if I could just make money creating art, I would. Most entrepreneurs I know have very little free time. If you had free time to spare, how would you spend it? Probably just build something else. <laughs> it's an itch that uh, will never go away. That, no, that founder, <laughs> creator, maker bug. It's 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 always going to be there. And I know the more time I had, probably the more things I would try to do, um, or I would just spend more time on what I'm currently building. But yeah, I've never been. I don't know. It's it's the most exciting thing I think for me outside Definitely. of yeah family. What do you collect, if anything, and why? Uh, vinyl. I. I collect, uh, I buy a couple vinyl a month. Uh, so that's, that's kind of my, uh, my collector's itch. What's something you feel strongly about that not many people know? Probably that not everyone should try to be an entrepreneur. Um, maybe that's becoming more common, but, uh, I've always held the belief that, uh, I don't, I feel like we need all kinds of people in this world. And when we ram, um, entrepreneurism down people's throat, which is a high risk and, and oftentimes a low reward, uh, it's not always productive. And so, yeah, I, I've kind of been turned off by the everyone's an entrepreneur talk, even though I host an entrepreneur focused show. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed that actually a little bit here in the Bay Area where there's just uh, startups and, and, and even larger companies have a hard time hiring because their best engineers end up becoming entrepreneurs and, you know, maybe getting scooped back up by the company they left for millions of dollars, just come back to work. And I think in the Bay Area, like you're basically doing like high risk R&D for a lot of these companies. Um, But when you move outside of the Bay, the infrastructure isn't there. So I think it's tough. And, And I think we need all kinds of people to make these companies successful. I think we give too much credit to founders. Um, you know, we weight equity and everything else too heavily towards the founders, uh, where it takes an army of people to make something like Uber and it, or anything successful. And I, I don't, I don't think we, when we tell that hero story, I don't think it really does justice to everyone else involved. Right. Interesting. That's very interesting. Can you tell me about your guilty pleasure? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> Probably eat too much chocolate. I get stressed <laughs> out. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I guess that, that uh, you know, segues into the, my next question and possibly answers it, which is at, at the end of a long day, how do you like to relax? Right. That's that's a good question. Um, so I have two kids. And so I, I at the end of the day, I, I spend a lot of time with the family. It's not always relaxing, but by the time they go to bed, I, either I hang out with my wife uh, for a couple hours and uh, or I'm working on the rocket ship at night. So. I don't know. That's a good question. I'm really bad at that stuff. I wish I like skied or something, but um, <laughs> honestly, I've invested all of my time into building things. Actually, so that, that segues into my last question, I think. You know, it sounds like your family has moved with you across country, you know, at least on this last trip. How do you balance that work and, and life and, and being a parent? Yeah, I was really bad at it when I started. Like, I'm pretty sure my wife hated me for a long time because I didn't, I focused way too much on work and, and on whatever it is I was doing. And that's what I prioritize. But slowly over the last eight years, I've, um, I've gotten better at making time for family that takes away from time where I could be working. But I think it's important to get away from work and and honestly be able to focus on your family but i still struggle with it turning off even like my thoughts about it like oftentimes i'm still working on a problem even when we're having dinner and i shouldn't be you know i should be able to just have dinner and focus on the family but i still find it hard to if i haven't solved whatever problem i'm working on at four o'clock i find it hard to shut it off until i'm i feel a resolve with myself and it's something I'm really trying to get better at. Well, I'd like to give you this opportunity uh, in the mic, which sounds a lot better than mine, um, <laughs> <laughs> to plug anything that you like. Sure. Yeah, yeah. If uh, So go to crew.co. Check out if you have a project or if you're a consultant and you'd like to find quality work, go to crew.co and you can start a project there. Um, go to Rocketship FM and I know you listen to podcasts, so give us a shot. You can find all 250 episodes at Rocketship FM. And uh, I guess that's it. That, that'll be the two. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Definitely. Thank you so much for being on Venture Forth today. And again, congratulations on your new role as president of Crew.co. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to the Venture Forth podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. You can also follow at Venture Forth Pod on Twitter for our latest updates. As always, I'm your host, Joe Mahavutivani, and thank you for listening to the Venture Forth podcast.